You're listening to the J. John Podcast. Subscribe to the J. John Podcast today to catch up with previous episodes. And as ever, if you want to find out more about the Christian faith, visit jjohn.com or follow J. John on social media. You're listening to J. John in conversation with Will van der Hart. Will, welcome to the programme. J. John's brilliant to be here. I'm really excited. Uh, we've known each other for a number of years and you were reminding me of that first meeting when we went on a little road trip. Yeah, it was a crazy meeting. I remember being in the car with you. We got caught in a snowstorm. I think we spent five hours in a snowstorm, which was brilliant for me because I was training for ministry. So I just remember asking you more and more and more questions. You must have been absolutely exhausted, but it was a really good trip. Really, but, really good. but it's funny, when you mentioned it to me, I, I remembered it like quite vividly uh, it's a memory and it was probably a journey that had more fruit from it than any other journey I've ever done. Oh, wow, that's great. I mean, I, I remember it being really formative for me because you, you said a few things to me which really impacted me. The first one was about reading. You said to me, just keep reading, Will, whatever you do. And I really just picked that up and was like, OK, I've got to start reading more, which was really, really fruitful. And I absolutely love reading. Um, and the other one was write some things or film some things, and that's what I've, I've done that as well. So great advice. I mean, that oh, must be sort of nearly 20 years ago or so. But well, um, really formative. That's so encouraging. Will, how would you describe what it is that you currently do? Well, at the moment, I've just picked up a new job as well-being chaplain to quite a broad national network of churches. And um, my purpose there is really to look after leaders so in 2005, I was a young Anglican priest in Marlebone, and I got caught up in the London bombings, in the 7-7 uh, bombings. And um, I just dropped my wife, Louie, at the station. She was going to a conference in Oxford, walked back just after the point which that bomb had gone off in the Edgware Road station. And I put on my clergy collar and went under the cordon and set up this um, sort of, I, I offered to the police this hall that I was in charge of, and they used that as an operation space. Um, the, I saw things I shouldn't have seen, probably in terms of like dramatic things that I wasn't expecting. And the long and the short of it was, I had a, a, a quite acute anxiety breakdown about three months after that event. Um, and uh, recovery was quite complicated, partly because in the church we'd had a tendency to either really spiritualise mental health issues or to physicalise them. So one dear pastor who was in charge of me said, I just need to sleep, which was difficult to do when you're very, very anxious. And the other one thought that, that sort of the enemy might have got into me and we needed to cast the enemy out of me. What, what I really needed was some good psychological support. And uh, through a Christian friend, um, Dr. Rob Waller, who's a psychiatrist I, I now write with, uh, and, and a great secular doctor, I got better, um, but it really stirred my heart for people who are struggling with mental health issues in the church. Uh, and also, over time, I've become more and more conscious about leaders and leader mental health. So a lot of what I do now is working with leaders to support their mental health over the long haul and look at issues around sustainable leadership. So not just how can we make an impact as leaders, but actually how can we sustain that impact and live a healthy life. Absolutely. How long did it take you uh, to recover? Um, and can I use the word trauma? Sure. Because sometimes we don't use that word, but actually that whole experience of the bombing um, was a trauma. Yeah. How, how long did it take you to recover? 
Well, it's, it's a great question, J. John, because, you know, I always think I could tell, I, I got this award from the Metropolitan Police, the Assistant Commissioner's Commendation uh, for service to the Met Police. And I remember feeling like a terrible fraud because I thought, goodness, what have I done other than, you know, offer people the toilet, make them tea and, you know, whatever. Um, but... But I think what I found really difficult about being involved was it was a trauma. I felt very ill-equipped for the trauma I'd experienced. And then I felt unfairly rewarded for investing in myself in this in environment. And I kind of realised I could tell quite a worthy story about someone who was involved in this terrorist incident and then had a, a sort of breakdown as a result. That wouldn't be a very true story. I'd say the real story of my life is I was already incredibly anxious. I was an anxious young person. I was an anxious teenager, as an anxious young professional person, and my way of dealing with anxiety was by overworking. So I was always working, I was always going out, I was always doing things. And in my first year of my curacy, I remember talking to my wife, Lewin, and saying, I think I've done 16 nights straight now, as if that was a good thing, and someone was going to give me a gold star. Um, in fact, I was already burning out. Yes. But what the London bombings did to me was it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And actually, um, it was a quite a dramatic straw, but, but it wasn't the event itself that really caused me the deep anxiety. It was, that was the trigger, but actually the, the, the experience was already present in my life. And the recovery I could talk about in two stages. The first recovery took about six months. That was trying to get out of panic attacks, trying to get my, my sleep back, trying to get my, uh, my nutrition right, uh, trying to kind of be relaxed and not jumpy, you know, not be hypervigilant. So that took about six months to kind of get through that, and that, that included medication and some therapy. But actually the bigger story was, how can I live a more peaceful life? Yes. And, and actually that recovery is an ongoing recovery. Because there's a vulnerability, I think, in all of us that makes us want to try and control our lives and control the world, uh, you know, always be conscious of what we can fix. And so for me, that's a discipline and that's kind of ongoing. And I have to just always check myself and say, Lord, you're in control of my life. Uh, a unique peace that I experience isn't through my fixing of things. It's about my releasing my circumstances to God and trusting in him and receiving peace from him. And I think that, that's where mental health and discipleship kind of go hand in hand. Actually, I have carried a diagnosis of what's called GAD, generalized anxiety disorder, forward from that acute phase. And it'll always be on my medical record, but I always remind myself, that's GAD, but I've got God. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and that's where I find great victory over my anxiety disorder, is bringing myself back into the Lordship of Jesus and going, there are practical and psychological things I need to do to fight worry, in my experience, but there's also a supernatural element to that work, and that's one in prayer and through encounter with God. Um, uh, recently, Will, uh, I moved this very, very heavy item, which my wife told me not to do, uh, but I thought I could do it, and I poured a muscle in my back, and it was excruciating. And I've never had back issues at all, and it's given me an empathy for all the people who say they've got a back problem. And in many ways, until we experience experience a particular pain, we don't often have an empathy, do we, for people? So obviously this whole uh, 
encounter and crisis and part of your journey has gave you that empathy for many people who struggle with mental health problems, which you probably didn't consider before. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think when I first saw you, if you told me that I was going to have a, a ministry around mental health, I would have run 100 miles. Um, but it, it, it's, that, uh, it's that New Testament encouragement that we will have a comfort uh, to share with others that we ourselves have received. And I think God, uh, in his graciousness, offers us some, some of us a unique comfort uh, that's forged in the fire of life's experiences in order that we might comfort those people who have that unique pain uh, and need that unique kind of alongside experience. When you say mental and emotional health, what do you mean? Well, I, I like to think that we're all on a continuum. And what, one of the great challenges, uh, you know, I've got a real heart for men and women who are struggling in this area, but what I recognise is that mental health disproportionately affects men in terms of their approach to, uh, to recovery. So women tend to get into recovery more quickly and um, have find more supports, and men tend to avoid recovery and find less supports. And that's mirrored in the statistics around suicide which uh, in men are nearly three times uh, as, uh, as, as prevalent as they are in women yes. in the UK. And actually, instances of, of, of suicide amongst the female population have decreased, whereas instances of, of male suicide have increased. And um, I think just this whole area of, of, of connection with men means that trying to keep a man in the room for a conversation around mental health is hard. And so when we talk about mental health, men often immediately go, that's not me, and they back away from the conversation. Whereas I like to think about emotional health as a kind of on-ramp to the whole conversation, a bit like uh, physical health and physical illness. So if I wanted to talk to a group of men, for example, about physical health, they'd all be like, yeah, I want to talk about going to the gym and working out and all these sort of things. Um, they'd be excited about it. It's just an on-ramp, something that they feel that they can connect with. If I talk to them about mental health, they will do the opposite. But if I talk about everyone's struggle for emotional health, it's more proactive. And at the end of the day, it's at the thin end of the wedge. So everyone has physical health that they need to manage and support. And then sometimes we have physical illness where we need to see a doctor. Everyone equally has emotional health. That's something we need to continue to work to support. But a few people will have mental illness where they'll need to consult with a doctor and maybe get medication. So if you think about that continuum between health and illness, we're all on it somewhere. And the key thing is getting everyone into the conversation around emotional health and recognising that care of our emotional health doesn't preclude us from ever getting a mental health issue, but it can help us to recover more quickly, it can help us to avoid certain conditions, and, and generally it's good for everyone in community. So the more aware we are of our emotional health collectively, the more healthier culture will become. We seem to be talking a lot today about mental health, mental health issues. I mean, more so than we did 20 years ago. Um, were these issues around 20 years ago, or are they more now? It's such an important question, Jay John, and I'm delighted that more people are talking about mental health today. But one of the challenges, that other people will kind of close their ears to it and be like, oh, not another person talking about mental health. It's almost sort of too much. People feel like that the environment is sort of swamped by this conversation. 
But, but I'm delighted that more people are talking about it than they ever were. And undoubtedly, more people are finding uh, a diagnosis for conditions that previously weren't diagnosed. And more people are ho hopefully doing preventative mental health work as well, the sort of emotional health work we're talking about. It's definitely not a new phenomenon. In fact, I remember reading some letters that Charles Wesley's wife had written uh, about uh, the care of a doctor who was clearly depressed and she didn't want this doctor to go into an institution, so the Wesleys were trying to look after them, uh, this person themselves. So this is a kind of, you know, early story, you know, in our church history around mental health issues. You've got Charles Spurgeon, potentially the greatest preacher uh, in the history of the British church, uh, 20 years depressed. Mother Teresa, uh, her ministry was, was marked by significant depression. You've got Florence Nightingale, who had bipolar disorder. Uh, William Cooper, who wrote the only hymns. Uh, he, he had suicidal ideation. In fact, the song There Is a Fountain Filled With Blood recounts the story when he attempted to take his own life and John Newton came in and fished him out of his own bathtub and rescued him and saved his life. Wow. So you know, these are stories from our history. Even Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, uh, had acute anxiety and OCD. And John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wasn't writing about some special magical journey that someone was going on. He was writing about the journey of his own mind. Yes. So all of these are stories of people who've a foundation stones of our church today, and all of them had significant mental illness of different kinds. Um, they sought different sorts of remedy, um, and some to greater or lesser uh, uh, benefit. But, but ultimately, they show us that the mental health story is our story, and that um, spiritual uh, fire and fervor is not a protection against mental illness. And that's been potentially a a misunderstanding in the church at large, which has spiritualized some mental health conditions unnecessarily. And therefore, particularly around the turn of the century, there was a su suggestion that if you were mentally unwell, well, that was definitely because the devil had somehow got into you. Yeah. And actually, as you can see with all those saints, that's just not the case. That just like a physical health condition, you can have a very strong and deep spirituality and encounter with Jesus, and yet still struggle with that sort of condition. Yes, I, I was, um, I've just been reminded, I, I was on this TV programme in America and um, one of the other guests uh, that was going to be on the programme was a psychiatrist. And so we were in the green room and, and I, I just loved talking to him and we were talking about all sorts of things. And I said, well, what, what if you've got this condition or what if you've got that condition? And it was very interesting and I still remember it well, what he said to me. He says, well, first of all, you know, as a medical doctor, psychiatrist, uh, I will see whether the person has a chemical imbalance. And that's the phrase that he used, chemical imbalance. And if they've got a chemical imbalance, then I'm going to try uh, and address that. But I'm also very interested, not just in that, as a Christian, I'm looking at two other things, two, community what kind of community have they got? Because I can give them the chemicals, but if they don't have community, that's not going to solve the problem. And then, of course, Christ. Mm. And then he said the problem today is that, and this was a conversation years ago, is that we only offer people Christ. And, and, and I think as I've reflected on that, we don't often talk about chemicals, community, and Christ, do we? No, absolutely. And I think that's such a profound and important part of understanding who we are as people. 
because we still carry a kind of um, uh, Cartesian duality in our understanding of ourselves, where we sort of cut off between our, our spiritual self and our physical self. Uh, and actually, I believe much more in sort of Trinitarian nominism, where we are uh, mind, body and spirit together, and we are integrated. And therefore, how we affect the body will affect the, the mind, and how we affect the mind will affect the spirit. God's created us in a Trinitarian way. Yeah. Um, and therefore, we should be asking whether or not our physical body, if you like, our physical mind needs treatment in order to rebalance our chemicals. At the same time, our spiritual mind needs treatment of a spiritual kind. But all of this medicine feeds the whole self. I always think, you know, the incarnation must mean something. If God became flesh and moved into our neighborhood, that must matter. But so often in the church, we've kind of forgotten the matter and we've just thought about our spiritual self. And that's left a lot of people with mental health conditions either stigmatized on the understanding that they're somehow weak or spiritually unclean, uh, or it's left people having to go outside of the church entirely to get treatment and then believe that their spirituality doesn't deserve any attention. We know, for example, around trauma, that there's very little in the way of uh, chemical healing available for people with traumatic experience, particularly PTSD. Uh, but the best form of treatment is actually community-based treatment. Yes. And that the church can play a unique role in enabling people to recover from trauma by being a safe environment where people can commune together. So you know, we think about God as the great physician, in a way, he's created a fantastic hospital, but we just need to see it for what it is and yes. say, actually, come in if you need healing because there's healing here in this environment. Where do we find well, uh, well-being? Uh, you know, we might be feeling we're burnt out. We might feel that we have got mental health issues. Um, where do we get the help? It's not always easily accessible. No, it's not. And, you know, it's incredibly difficult now, even within the context of many sort of um, in national health services, not just in the UK, but around the world, for people to find affordable help. And fortunately, the internet has provided a lot of opportunity for people to access information, at least, around mental health conditions and some self-driven supports, which can, can basically acknowledge and can alleviate some, some conditions. And there's been some great developments in some of the tools available at Aaron Beck's work on cognitive behavioral therapy, it means that many tools are out there that people can use and employ uh, to certainly mitigate some of the impacts of what we call the neurotic uh, group of illnesses, depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder and the like. More serious than enduring uh, mental health conditions, psychotic disorders and the like, need medical treatment. Yes. Well, they, they, everything should be assessed by a doctor and that's really important. And I, I really would speak to anyone, particularly in the UK, that the NHS are available to talk about mental health conditions as a first stop and that yes. a third of all doctor appointments today are around mental health. Okay. So doctors are equipped to do that work. But... Uh, accessing supports more broadly, particularly therapeutic supports, can be challenging, but the NHS in the UK is the best place to start, and in any other nation, to see a physician as a, as a first stop is really, really important. It's 
always the most important step that's the first step that's to break the silence and too many people i know have been suffering in their mental health in silence for so long the second step is to get the information you need to understand what's going on for you that's often done you know, with a medical person up front and the third step is to integrate your healing approach which is recognizing that there is a mind element a body element and often a soul element too that the lord can bring a healing, Absolutely. the physician could bring some healing and the environment can bring some healing and there's some healing that comes through our body through the way we manifest that in our physical selves um, and being curious about a healing because there is not a uniform model here. Um, everyone, if you like, has yeah. a unique picture. It's not quite like physical illness. Everyone has a unique relationship with their mind and therefore some things will work well for some people and other things will work well for somebody else. And and you've said you've hinted and said it several times as well, Jesus and the Lord, and and obviously He's healed you, He's healing you, and you've seen His healing in the lives of many others, mm. um, and that's hugely encouraging, isn't it? It's massively encouraging, and I, I love the fact that you've identified you know. Paul's particular use of tenses in the New Testament, which is this present continuous idea yes. that uh, it, it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. And I think that is particularly profound and important when mental health is concerned. Because I always think the Lord could miracle healing in absoluteness in a moment, but you'd often have to spend a lifetime trying to work out what had actually happened, which would be quite confusing. And often the healing that Lord offers people with mental health issues is, is a gradual healing, and there's points of awakening where you think, I'm doing so much better than I used to do. But there's also a need for a consciousness of the fact that some of that work's an ongoing work. In the charity that I formed with Dr. Rob Waller in, uh, I think, 2006, the Minor Soul Foundation, we connect with uh, Christians around the world who've been struggling in their mental health. And we've heard countless stories of God's grace yes. and favour on people who have uh, been struggling in their mental health. And we've had over the years a number of people who've contacted us to say, you know, I was at the point of choosing to make a catastrophic decision against my life. And the Lord broke in in this way and I've yeah. pulled back from the brink and now I'm getting the help that I need. And you know, that's just always so encouraging. It's also wonderful to hear the testimony of people who have quite acute mental health problems, what we call the serious enduring. I've got a good friend called Sharon Hastings who's done quite a lot of writing and she's a, she's a doctor herself but has suffered from a, a serious enduring mental health condition. Uh, and just hearing her talk about the presence of the Lord in what is quite acute suffering uh, is so encouraging remember I think that the Lord is always with us and I think one of the things that that everyone who's struggling with mental health conditions can know at all times is that, that they are not abandoned by the Lord and if I go up to the heavens he is there if I go down to the very depths of the sea he is there with me and isolation and loneliness are the two most amplifying factors for anyone suffering from a mental health condition and I can say that from personal experience, Joe yes, John. Absolutely. When I was sort of deeply anxious and depressed, I looked absolutely fine. And uh, I, I couldn't explain the agony that I was feeling, but I felt so disconnected from others. It was, a, it was the most deeply agonizing feeling I can describe to you. The thing that really kept me steady was the sense that, that even though I almost couldn't feel him, I knew that the Lord had not abandoned me, yes. that the Lord was with me. And that was, that was 
just the, the comfort I needed throughout that season, and it continues to be in many ways. Absolutely. Oh, well, you have written a few books. I just want to mention a couple of the books. I, and I love the way that you do these books. <laughs> you know, the guilt book, yeah. um, the, the perfectionism book, um, the worry book. I, uh, go on, what prompted you to write these three? Well, obviously, up front, I wrote The Worry Book with Dr. Rob because I wanted to really address my reality, which is actually that worry was my problem. And worry is the on-ramp to anxiety. And if we don't get a worry, uh, if we don't address our worry, then it just can scale. So that was quite personal, really, in a way. I was like, I want to know why am I struggling with worry? What can I do about it? Perfectionism uh, came after guilt. Now, when I say the guilt book, so the perfectionism book is really um, what happens when we worry because we always try and control. You know, uh, perfectionism is a way of trying to make the world safe. If I could just get everything right, everything would be perfect. So we wanted to undo that mandate, particularly in today's world where there's so much pressure that people are under. I think my favourite, I mean, I, I think that hopefully they're all useful books. My favourite actually is the guilt book, which has probably been the least good seller. Really? The books, yeah. Interesting. And the reason is that this isn't a book about real guilt. This is a book about what's called pathological guilt. And what Rob and I realised was, we started interviewing people in the church and we found swathes of people who had the good news of Jesus and were forgiven people and yet had somehow held on to some sort of guilt that couldn't be expunged. They were using, if you like, the wrong medicine for the right disease. And we identify the difference between true guilt, for which there is only one, one remedy in that entire world, and that is Jesus Christ. When we're truly guilty, there's only one remedy in the world that's offered, and that is the fact that Jesus died for our sins and has washed them away at the cross. But this other guilt was the one we wanted to deal with, which was this, what happens when I've been forgiven and yet I can't forgive myself? What happens with this feeling of disease within me, where I feel guilty, but I'm not actually guilty? And dealing with that was a real conundrum and something I think is really important and life-giving. I would encourage Christians who yeah. feel like, I still feel guilty even though I know I'm forgiven. There's work to be done there, and I think that's maybe one for you. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it reminds me of Lazarus, uh, that, who Jesus called out of the tomb and he comes out of the tomb but he's wrapped in grave clothes so he's come alive but he's bound right. and I think really sometimes where um, you know we've heard Jesus we Jesus has brought us to life but we're bound mm. and I think that's where Jesus says to others untie him yeah. and let him go and and if you know we would say wouldn't we anyone that's feeling bound, yeah. then get the help Absolutely. from others to set you free. Such a good illustration. And then I wrote yes. the, um, the Power of Belonging because really the, the engine room I realised in my life to a lot of the what I'd call neurosis, neurotic illness, was actually shame. Yes. And a lot of the work and study I've done and, and the, the team at Minor Soul have done have really uncovered this reality that if ultimately behind everything you don't really believe you deserve to be in the room, you, you're going to develop some really unhealthy coping strategies to stay in that room. And shame is this feeling of otherness, uh, of unbelonging. And really, shame is very, very early. It's one of the earliest emotions um, it's, it's, I call it the conductor of emotions. If you, manage, if you imagine an orchestra, 
the conductor has got the only instrument that doesn't make any noise of its own, yeah. and yet it, it can distort and shape every single sound in the room. And shame is the silent conductor of our emotional orchestra. It, it, it doesn't have any noise of its own, but it can distort everything else. And so I really want to uncover shame and, and, and really look at how we can address the issue of shame. Will, I, I, I love what you do. I love your books. And um, I really believe that you're, you are a voice uh, for a time such as this. And uh, thank you for sharing a little bit of your own journey. Thank you for joining us on the programme. Cheers, John, it's been a privilege. Thank you so much. I hope that has inspired you. Um, wonderful to have this conversation with Will. I highly recommend um, Will's books, these and others, um, a lot more of, the, of what Will has been talking about today. So take a look. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again. If you've enjoyed this episode of the J. John podcast, press subscribe to be notified about future episodes. You've been listening to J. John in conversation with Will van der Hart.